You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm Aaron Dietrich, your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond's content partner. Each week, we explore some aspect of the past, present, or future of intelligence and espionage. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you enjoy the show. Coming up next on SpyCast. So this, this is a fascinating period when the, the worlds of intelligence and information and media are coming together. And there is not only unprecedented interest in Charles and Diana, but also kind of a moment when the gloves come off, when the press is becoming less respectful, more intrusive. And this presents a whole range of problems, not least um, security problems for the royal family. This week, our guests are Richard Aldrich and Rory Cormack, authors of the new book, Crown, Cloak, and Dagger, The British Monarchy and Secret Intelligence from Victoria to Elizabeth II. Richard is a professor of international security at the University of Warwick, and Rory is a professor of international relations at the University of Nottingham. Both are former colleagues of Andrew. Now, We've learned time and time again here on SpyCast that spies are secretive, but this week we take it one step further looking at spies in the royal family. Secrets within secrets. In this episode, the trio discuss Prince William's internship with British intelligence, how Elizabeth II knew perhaps more secrets than anyone else in history, King Charles's love of intelligence, Queen Victoria as a spy master, and MI5, MI6, and the Diana Conspiracies. The original podcast on intelligence since 2006, we are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. I'm really looking forward to speaking to both of you guys about your book. And first off, congratulations on the book. And congratulations on getting such a superb uh, enconium on the back at the top. I, we, we, we aim for the stars, Andrew. We, we aim for the highest people. They weren't a bad boss, so we got you instead. <laughs> per Arja ad Astra. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> I, I have to say, we, we, really, um, we really loved doing the book. It was, um, it was great fun. And, and actually, I think for, for both of us, a unique experience because although women are playing a bigger part in espionage now, it's very, very rare 
to get a chance to talk about women at the top, women in charge um, in the in in the sort of espionage space. And this book is, you know, a huge amount of it is about Victoria and Elizabeth II. And, you know, they were just the best spy chiefs. And I wonder whether we'll ever in our entire careers get another chance to talk about two very impressive, um, innovative female spy chiefs. But then the thing that struck me, and uh, talking about, you know, will, will we ever get the chance to write about this again, was the the other unique part of the experience was the secrecy of it. And, um, you know, Rich and I are trained historians in the in the secret world, specializing in espionage and intelligence, obviously. And then suddenly we're, we're researching the royal family, which is out of our comfort zones. And oh my goodness, you think the CIA is secretive. You think MI6 is secretive. <laughs> um, these guys take it to a whole new level. So it was wonderful work writing about, you know, these women at the top of intelligence structures. But my God, it was difficult finding out about them. There's <laughs> these sort of Harry Potter wheels within wheels, secrets within secrets. There's this marvellous moment when the archivist at Windsor Castle, who's supposed to know all the secrets, suddenly discovers that other people are being told secrets that he doesn't know. And so you never quite know who's on the inside track, who's got the most secret secret. Just for our listeners that haven't read the book, how did you research this? Where did you get the material? You mentioned Windsor. Like, where does this stuff reside? Is it in archives, private papers? Did you have to bribe anyone? Yeah, how did you get the access to the material? Well, I'll tell you where it's not. It's not in the British National Archives. <laughs> um, and it's a barren wasteland of royal stuff. And I remember finding a file on the Queen's audience with the Prime Minister, which is you know, the most hush-hush meeting in the land. There's no minute taker. And you know that feeling when you're in the archive and you find you finally find something, you get a surge of excitement, you do a little, little archive dance, the nerdy historians that we are. Well, maybe that's just me. And I, I opened it up, blew the dust off it, and it was two pieces of paper between um, the Queen's private secretary and Macmillan's private secretary. And all it said was, um, will Her Majesty be okay if the Prime Minister turns up in tails and a tux or something, rather than a lounge suit? <laughs> and, and, and that was that. Um, so Richard was, Richard was an intrepid um, biography specialist, really. Richard spent ages going through book, second-hand bookshops, pouring, pouring over all sorts of things, didn't you? Yes, I think, you know, it, the little fragments everywhere, it's that process of putting together endless breadcrumbs and finally reassembling the loaf and in the strangest places obviously neglected private papers but my favorite was the national railway museum in the national railway museum they had a record of every train journey minute by minute day by day by the royal family and as we tried to reconstruct the king's wartime role in deception which units he inspected and how he gave credence to typically American deception formations. This was the key. We could see minute by minute what he was doing. So it really took us to the very kind of limits of our ingenuity to research this one. We've recently turned a corner historically with Prince Charles becoming King Charles. So based on your research, what would the onboarding process be like for Charles? So he becomes the king. Like, does he get an audience with the heads of SIS and uh, the security service? Uh, 
has he already been read into a lot of the stuff as the Prince of Wales or as the King in Waiting? How will he be inculcated into this world of intelligence that British royals have intersected with as you lay out in the book? Yes, well, the current king is already read into this stuff because for for some years, if you do something really amazing in the British intelligence community, you get a special secret award. Prince Charles, for years, would meet intelligence officers from the British community and give them awards for doing something spectacularly brave or or, or successful. And the you know the, the the current members of the royal family actually work as interns in the intelligence community, partly to ensure they're read in and they're ready for their roles. But it's also a morale boost to go and have one of the princes go and work at GCHQ, MI5, MI6. So they know a lot about this stuff before they already step up. Hmm. What's the name of that award? So the CIA's highest award is the Distinguished Intelligence Cross. Like, is do we know what this award is called that he was giving out, or is that classified? It's classified. It's still top secret. But okay. what we love <laughs> is we can see that Charles's passion about intelligence goes back for decades. There's a wonderful moment when he's just met Princess Diana, you know, years and years ago, and they're going off to Scotland trying to get away from the press. The press, the paparazzi are stalking them, trying to get a long-range shot of Charles and Di having a crafty snog in the heather. They zoom in on Charles. Princess Di is not there. She's not there. What they get is just Charles, and he's reading a book, and he's reading R.V. Jones's Most Secret War. He's reading one of the top books on wartime scientific intelligence. All that way back. So so this just shows that Charles <laughs> is an absolute dyed-in-the-wall spy fanatic. So for all we know, he could be giving out uh, pots of rhubarb jam. Uh, we don't actually know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably, it's probably Bletchley pot chutney, but yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, so we've got Charles, he's been bloodied and intelligence, but is there some threshold that he would have crossed in becoming the king, the sovereign? Is there some new layer that he would be read into? He was George Smiley, but now he's control. Um, is there some level of, of new secrets that he gets, or are the responsibilities different for him, or the, the people that he meets regularly different? Like, What will he be doing now on a like weekly, monthly basis with regards to intelligence? He'll get access to all the top stuff. He'll get the, you know, copy number one of the Joint Intelligence Committee uh, weekly report, for example, and all the you know, major intelligence assessments. He'll get regular briefings and updates from C, the, the chief of MI6. But how that differs from his role as prince, it's difficult to know because we obviously don't know what he received as prince. What we do know is that it varied depending, you know, historically, depending on the nature of the Prince of Wales and the trustworthiness of the Prince of Wales, which you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll come on to later. And some, some Princes of Wales were, uh, some heirs to the throne, were, were given stuff at a fairly early age and inducted into secrets. Um, Princess Elizabeth, as, as she then was, you know, was reasonably well trusted and she was getting access to, uh, to material in a way that, say, um, 
Queen Victoria's son and heir, Edward VII wasn't because he wasn't particularly trustworthy and he was he was frozen out. So it kind of, there's no formal process as far as we can tell. And it depends on the personality, trustworthiness, and frankly, blackmailability, if that's a word, of, um, of the head of the throne. <laughs> as no. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what we can see is, is down the years, for decades, hundreds of years, what monarchs have loved is getting top secret scandal on other monarchs. So yes, there's there's these JIC papers, there's there's the most classified stuff, but there's also raw reports on the the misdoings of the cousin of the king of Bulgaria and all this sort of stuff. And that's what the royal family really love, actually. For King Charles and, and for the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, you're basically saying that they get access to like everything it's just an open door if they want to see it then they see it wow it's, 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 it's that's what really struck me as i was writing you know this book with richard what struck me the most was how much access queen elizabeth ii had and how much she knew and I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that she probably knew more state secrets than any human being who has ever walked the history of the earth because she had access to everything for 70-odd years. And we're not just talking about um, all sorts of intelligence assessments. We're talking, as Richard said, uh, code words, um, raw material that the chief of MI6 would would brief her and deliver um, notes in his signature green handwriting. This is the the, the most secretive stuff in in. in in, in, in the cupboard. And um, and she loved it. She was amazingly briefed. And I remember reading interviews with American diplomats who were posted in, in London and they would go for their you know, dinner with, at the palace and meet the queen. And they were always so impressed at how she knew everything. And they thought she was the best briefed person in the whole of London. <laughs> because the, the intelligence supported their daily role so, you know, the, the Queen, the current King, are heads of state and they're meeting the heads of state of countries, which are frankly not democracies. And so they're meeting with policymakers. These are really important diplomatic meetings. And they're doing these short-term briefings several times a day on the people they're about to meet. And everybody remarks on this astonishing memory which they have to develop. So these people who've been essentially in service for, you know, half a, half a century and their knowledge of the people that they're interacting with and their secrets is, is probably unparalleled, actually. Wow. So an- another way to think about it just institutionally is she's, she's basically been briefed by every head of MI6 going back to Stuart Menzies, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. And she had, you know, things like Suez, for example. She had the the top secret you know, inside track on really sensitive and controversial and influential decisions like the invasion of Suez in 56. And then she becomes a library of state secrets and experience. And she can then, in the years and decades to come, uh, do her, her constitutional duty of famously raising an eyebrow to Prime Minister and, and saying, are you sure that's wise, Prime Minister? And she had <laughs> decades of experience and knowledge and secrets to help her raise that, um, that, that famous eyebrow. 
<laughs> I think one of the things that I enjoyed about your book was it makes you think about the royal family in a in a different way. I always thought being like the queen or the king sounded like a relatively boring job, but you know, having briefings with the head of MI6, a, a glass of Dubonnet and a couple of corgis by your side, it actually doesn't sound half bad. Make it sound like a, sound like a Bond villain now, stroking the corgis <laughs> as, as Bond arrives. <laughs> it, it, has its, it has its downside. The, the Queen is obviously popular, um, you know, in the UK. She's also very popular around the world. And, and that was fascinating because that means that that, that interacts with her security procedures. She doesn't think that anybody's going to try and attack her or assassinate her. But her biggest problem is the people she's going to be standing next to when she visits countries overseas. So although she's not in necessarily in personal danger herself from an attacker, what happens if they attack the person who who she's and and what happens if if someone attacks a visiting dignitary? Typically, the Shah in the nineteen seventies was someone that almost every self respecting terrorist group wanted to assassinate, and the Queen had to ride to Ascot in an open top carriage, and everybody was just saying, "Well, how many grenades? <laughs> how many RPGs? How many rocket launchers are going to be fired at the royal carriage?" on the way um, across London to a... So, so actually, yes, it's fun, but it's also, it's also fraught with danger. And one of the reasons the royals love their intelligence services is that they help to keep them alive. Richard just noted that royals have a particular fondness for their intelligence services due to their keen ability to keep them alive and well. And I would probably think the same if there were constant threats on my life and I managed to thwart them all. So let's take a few moments to look at the royals' relationship with assassinations. Despite numerous attempts and many threats, the last monarch of the British crown to be assassinated rather than executed was James I, King of Scotland, in 1437. James's uncle, Walter Stuart, conspired with around 30 of his supporters to kill King James and take the throne for himself. James and his wife had been staying at the royal apartments in Blackfriars Monastery in Perth, Scotland, for a couple of months, when one night in February, James's personal chamberlain let the conspirators into the priory. James and his wife suddenly found themselves trapped in their room. The locks on the doors had been broken and the only thing standing between James and certain death were the Queen's ladies guarding the door. Using a pair of iron tongs, James managed to peel back a floorboard and crawled through a sewer tunnel, a sewer tunnel that just days before the King had ordered to be sealed up. With no exit in sight, James hid until he was eventually found and murdered. With very little support for the conspiracy, all of the individuals who worked with Walter Stewart were eventually tortured and executed. James's six-year-old son would then assume the throne of Scotland. Now, with only one assassination in the past 600 years, clearly the services that protect the crown are doing something right. And if you happen to be in Perth and are looking for a pint, the site of this assassination is now a lovely pub named after King James himself. We'll pick up with more about assassinations looking from a more global perspective in the next interlude.
We'll be right back after this. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Just going back to Rory's point about the Queen knowing more secrets than any human being has ever lived. I mean, that's a that's a fascinating point that you make in the book as well, because her reign was so long and it also coincided with the rise of of systematized professional intelligence in the UK. So just by definition and, and given her a level of access over over that period of time. That's an astonishing number of secrets. So. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, let's face it, it's, it's a bold claim when we come here and say <laughs> she, she knows more state secrets than anyone's ever lived. But I, I genuinely think it's true. I mean, she was on the throne for 70-odd years. She had high-level briefings for all that time. There was one really interesting point where that level of knowledge actually differed from the Prime Minister. And it creates this slight constitutional conundrum because she, at this point, knew more than the Prime Minister about secret intelligence matters. And it was 1964 when um, Anthony Blunt, the Queen's uh, art historian, essentially, to the palace, was uh, confessed to being famously a Soviet agent. And the Queen was told. And the Prime Minister was not told. And I'd love to be a fly on the wall in that weekly Tuesday afternoon chat as they're talking about, you know, security and things that have come up and world affairs. And she knows, she knows that this guy at the heart of the British establishment has just confessed to being a, a Soviet agent. And she agrees to keep him um, in place so as not to, you know, alert Soviet intelligence and blow potential uh, counterintelligence investigations. She, she plays along, she keeps in place. But the Prime Minister, it seems, did not know. And I'd, I'd love to know uh, what the dynamics were like in that particular meeting. They were good <laughs> friends as well. I mean, Alec Douglas Hume was a prime minister, uh, a kind of long-forgotten British prime minister, but um, very blue-blooded, aristocratic, friends of the Queen. Um, but she knew and he didn't, which creates all sorts of interesting uh, constitutional problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
that's fascinating right there, right? The Queen knew who the fourth man was and the Prime Minister's in the dark. Wow. So I think now it could be quite interesting to jump back to Queen Victoria. We've actually done a couple of podcasts on Elizabeth I and Francis Walsingham. So I'm just going to leave that aside so that we can go into more depth in a couple of other topics. So let's go back to Victoria because you make the point in the book that um, really, the assassination attempts against her were really the the, the seeds that, that led to the birth of British intelligence. Could you just tell the listeners a little bit more about that? She was the most fascinating woman, leader, monarch. She was just amazing. And I came to, to this not knowing anything about her. She was supposed to feature in about two chapters in the book, and she ends up being, I think, uh, four um, because she she just loved intelligence. She was such an avid consumer and an obsessive. She, um, from an early age, she was um, taught in deception techniques and how to evade counterintelligence. Um, she would, an intelligence analyst, she would sit at her desk in Windsor Castle alongside the prime minister and the two of them would be poring over the latest human intelligence reports, and she would be helping him interpret them and you know say what they mean because they were often about her friends and relatives, and you know she knew the dynamics of that stuff better than the uh, than the prime minister. She had her own network of agents and spies across the European royal houses, and sometimes she used that to support British foreign policy. Sometimes, let's be honest, she used that to outmaneuver and manipulate. Uh, British foreign policy. So she was she was an obsessive. And when it came to the assassination attempts, of which there were about nine or so, she shifts from becoming a intelligence analyst, come consumer, come gatherer, to becoming an, a, a kind of ballistics expert. And one of the first ones uh, was you know, there was an attempt to, to 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 shoot her, and she insisted on being shown the bullet holes in the wall where it missed her head, and she wanted to. She wanted to see how close it had come. She drags the Home Secretary off. She wants regular updates on the interrogation of all these things. And my favourite story of the, the assassination attempts was when she and Albert were out and about um, on one of their walks and someone steps forward, tries to shoot them and fortunately misses, but he escapes. So the next day, the Queen, I'm talking about you know, bravery of monarchs, decides to use herself as bait with Albert. She sends her ladies away to back into the castle. She says, it's far too dangerous for you. And she and Albert go out, um, retrace their footsteps in the hope that this assassin would step out again and, uh, and try for a second time. And this time, um, the police had planted all sorts of undercover officers disguised as trees and whatnot to try and, um, to try and uh, catch the assassin. And uh, and so it so it goes, and they 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 retrace their steps, and sure enough, the assassin steps out from behind another tree, and there's this wonderful moment where the undercover um, officer forgets what he's actually supposed to be doing, and he stands forward to salute their royal majesties as they're walking past, because uh, he uh, he has no intelligence training, no undercover training. His patriotism overtakes him, and he salutes the the royal the royal majesties. Um, and, the, and the assassin you know, tries to kill them again, unfortunately, uh, again, misses, and this time is apprehended. And it's a botched attempts like that with terribly amateurish um, detective work, which helped to, as you say, spur the creation of special branch and undercover policing. 
So tell us a little bit more about that. So the special branch, undercover policing, and then eventually we get to the Intelligence Bureau, MI5. Yeah, so it's something that I think intelligence historians haven't realised, that the attempts to assassinate the British royal family, but also royal families across Europe, are a very major driver in terms of the growth of professional intelligence services. The, the British royal family, Victoria, Albert, an incredibly brave. Um, Albert actually... <laughs> They're attacked so often that Albert actually commissions a special umbrella made of chain mail <laughs> to defend <laughs> the Queen. It's a bit heavy. She doesn't use it very often. But 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 this is there's a serious point here. You know, the, the British royal family survive partly because they're attacked by mostly eccentrics who are mentally disturbed. Across Europe, it's also anarchists and royals, including relatives of Victoria, are dying like flies over a period of about 50 years. And this is a big driver in terms of the creation and the professionalization of intelligence. I wish I had had that umbrella when I lived in Birmingham. Could have been pretty handy. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I mean that's, a, that's another fascinating thing that you outline in the book. Um, what people often forget that around this time, this is a, a pan-European network of blood relations that is grafted on top of the the rise of nationalism within various countries. So tell us a little bit more about that. So uh, she's got relatives in Bulgaria, Denmark, Greece, Germany, Netherlands, Belgium, Romania, Russia, and Spain. I mean, that's basically the whole of Europe. So they're all what they're all trading secrets or or you know gossiping about each other that involves state secrets. Um, help our listeners understand a little bit more about how that sort of royal intelligence network functioned. Well, she was the head honcho of this network. She sat at the very, very top of it. And they were all, yes, they were gossiping, but they were all feeding intelligence back up to her. And the wonderful thing about it was this was a world where you know formal intelligence didn't really exist in the way it does now. It was all blurred in with the personal. So you'd have a letter saying, oh, so-and-so's dog is a bit poorly today. Um, by the way, Bismarck's amassing troops on the border of Austria. Uh, it was all kind of <laughs> blurred and merged into one. So it was it, it had some genuinely really, really important stuff. And um, it had material which the government didn't have access to. Um, you know, one of the most famous examples was the um, Schleswig-Holstein Wars in the mid-19th century, which uh, don't worry, you don't need to know the, the ins and outs. Of. In fact, there was, a, there was a, a famous quip by Lord Palmerston as Prime Minister when he said something like, these wars are, are, are so complicated, um, only three people ever understood them. One was Prince Albert, and he's dead. One was a German professor, and he's gone mad. And one was me, and I've forgotten. Um, but <laughs> essentially, she, she, she had, uh, her daughter was, in the, was married to the Crown Prince of Prussia um, and was passing her intelligence on Prussian um, capabilities and intentions. And she used that to effectively change the government's foreign policy and make them not intervene in a war that they otherwise would have intervened in. So whenever dynastic interests clashed with British um, government interests, the Queen would and did use her royal network of agents to um, to try to to try to, to to shape things, and eventually Bismarck got wise to this and gradually froze her daughter Vicky um, out uh, evermore. And to be fair, he he had a point. 
Vicky also engaged in what we might call, using modern terminology, as a, a hack and leak operation. She leaked a bunch of letters to the Times newspaper um, to expose Bismarck's um, naughtiness. Uh, and uh, yeah, when Bismarck accused her of being a spy and an agent, he had a point, to be fair. And, and Bismarck attempts counter-operations, so he puts spies into Vicky's household, and they're not just watching her, they're warning her. So they go away for a little holiday, they come back, drawers have been visibly broken into, locks have been broken, very much like the KGB used to do in the 1950s. They go into a diplomat's flat, visibly mess things up as a kind of physical warning. Things are getting a bit hot. It's it's the same techniques run down the centuries. Mm -hmm. And just to jump back to something you said earlier, Rory, you mentioned that she was trained in tradecraft and counterintelligence and even covert communications. How, how did that come about? Is that something that royals got taught? or The informal family business, if you like. This was the, her uncle, who was Leopold, King of the Belgians, when Victoria was a 14, 15-year-old girl, was training her, teaching her about how if you know that the government's postal service where you're sending a letter to is going to intercept that letter, or you assume they're going to intercept it, you can release, you can write something fake in order to deceive them. It's a classic, classic intelligence deception tradecraft, knowing that the, the, the enemy's counterintelligence organizations or domestic security organizations are intercepting letters. You feed them some, some truths, some chicken feeds, some... Um, yeah, same as I just said, same principle throughout the centuries, same as the, the D-Day deception operations. And yeah, and he, and he pointed out that you, you can do this. And later on, there was a minor scandal about government interception of letters. And Prince Albert was just kind of so blasé. He said, well, of course governments intercept letters. What are we, what are you worrying about? They, they do, and we can exploit that. We can use that to our advantage. Stop being so flipping squeamish, he thought. Wow. Stop being so British. Very hard for him. <laughs> so we have the, the Victorian era, we have the birth of, of British intelligence in a, in a formal sense. Uh, we have MI5, MI6, uh, the government code in cipher school, and then, and then GCHQ. So uh, just before we got up to the war, my question is, do they, do they have a, a favourite? Is there, is there one that they're particularly close to? Do they, do they love the, the tittle-tattle that they get from GCHQ? Or are they particularly intrigued by the director of MI6? Or I think in the first part of the 20th century, it has to be MI6 because they simply won more medals. George V decorated them highly, and um, the head of MI6 in Russia, Paul Dukes, was knighted for his services. I think pretty much the only MI6 officer, as opposed to a chief, who was knighted. And this, we think, relates to two operations. Firstly, an attempt to, a successful attempt to assassinate Rasputin. It's now pretty clear that MI6, not a Russian prince, assassinated Rasputin, and then attempts to extricate the Tsar after the, after the revolution and some operations thereafter, an attempt, it seems, perhaps to kill Lenin. Um, certainly these things endeared MI6 very much, um, not only to the 
not only to the king, but to Morlocks everywhere. And so we come up to the war. Tell, tell us a little bit more about the Second World War, the royals and intelligence. This is quite a fascinating story. So tell us a little bit more about King George VI and his daughter, of course, the future Elizabeth II. Well, when, when he came to the throne, he had a bit of a trust-building exercise to, 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 to do. He had to win over the intelligence services because, of course, his brother, Edward VIII, had just disgraced himself. Um, he was spied on by the intelligence services. He was, um, I think it's fair to say, and put it mildly, sympathetic to the Nazi cause. And the intelligence services did not trust him. They were spying on him. They also knew that he was very leaky with their secrets. You know, there was one, one occasion where he was having a cocktail party at Fort Belvedere and was leaving documents, top secret documents lying around and they'd come back with red wine stains on them. And there was one moment where he said, I think it was the American attache, who was said, oh, you're, you're going back to London via Downing Street, aren't you, old chap? Would you mind taking these top secret documents with you and handing them back to the prime minister on your way home? And you can imagine the horror of British intelligence as he was doing that. Um, so when George VI comes in, he is also an appeaser, and he wasn't a pro-Nazi like his brother, but he was an appeaser. He lived through the horrors of World War I and didn't want to repeat it, and famously publicly aligned himself to Chamberlain when Chamberlain comes back with his fake, waving his, his piece of paper in the air saying, you know, peace in our time. Um, so when war actually breaks out, he has an uphill task of winning the trust of the intelligence services. And it's slow going, um, but eventually he gets brought in to every secret in the land. And he really loves sabotage. He really loves the sort of stuff that SOE and OSS are doing. He goes off to some of the forward frontline bases in North Africa. And who does he see there? Um, whole range of people, including some Hollywood movie stars who've rocked up to do some sabotaging. He comes <laughs> back and he's full of tales for the rest of the royal family. Um, the Queen, Princess Margaret, Princess Elizabeth. He can't take them out to North Africa to see this stuff. So he takes them to an SOE airfield training base north of London. And they're all there admiring all the top secret gadgets, all the all the silence pistols, the compasses. Their favourite is exploding horse dung. The queen goes over to the king, says... Is that not everyone's exactly, favourite? Look at this. <laughs> well, the, you know, the royal family love horses, but exploding horse dung. So there's all the royal family admiring this um, this horse poo, which um, has, has a special secret purpose. It's great. Our favourite one was um, he also got indoctrinated into the D-Day deception um, secrets. So this is possibly the, the most secret and sensitive part of, um, of, of the Second World War. When MI5, of course, are launching the, the double-cross deception operation to try and convince Hitler that the overlord uh, Normandy landings are going to take place in Calais rather than Normandy. And the, the king has a has a role you see spooks coming over to the palace and he gets kind of indoctrinated into secrets and, the, and the, he and how it works is he coordinated his movements 
around the country to align with the deception operation, to align with the material which the MI6 network of fake agents was sending back to Hitler. And he essentially operated as a giant royal highlighter pen, drawing Hitler's attention to certain battalions at certain parts of the country to give this impression that the invasion was going to come from, uh, from Calais. And this also involves bravery, to be fair to him, because the less famous, um, the less famous part of the operation was something called Fortitude North, which would convince the Germans that there was also going to be a, an invasion into Norway. And so what the king did to back up and to give more credibility to this deception narrative was to fly um, to islands way off the north coast of Scotland, closer to Norway than they were to London, and visit the Northern Fleet, knowing full well that the British newspapers report on this, King visits Northern Fleet, knowing full well that the Nazis were reading what the British press were reporting, and just giving that extra credibility. So it was all, it was very carefully coordinated, giving the king himself a role. And he was delighted, the quote in, um, I think it was in his private secretary's diaries, the quote was, he was delighted in bamboozling, bamboozling the Germans. And of course, he loved this because this was something that he took part in. So there was a top secret internal report on this deception operation. And it seems this is the last thing he was reading when he died um, in the early 1950s. Really? Wow. Uh, this was, this was wow. clearly close to his heart because he was upset about the scale of casualties and he saw deception as something that would essentially protect the the Allied troops as they landed in 1944. So basically King George VI was part of the D-Day deception operations. Wow. I'm sure our listeners will find that really interesting. Um, I, I'm thinking as well, the king during the war, he finds his metal a bit more, doesn't he? he? Like you say, he starts off a bit soft and Chamberlain-esque, but I remember reading in Churchill's memoirs that he said the the, the king's practicing with his pistol in Buckingham Palace in case the Germans storm the coast and things like this. I think I think it would be interesting now to turn to uh, Elizabeth and Philip, and, and then I think later we can go on to Diana and Charles and Diana. So Elizabeth and Philip, uh, you mentioned the Nazi connection. So I think there's, in the book you say, it's three of Philip's sisters are Nazi sympathizers and one of them's even a member of the party. Um, so that, that does that mistrust that the intelligence services have towards uh, King George VI transfer over onto Elizabeth, the, the, the future uh, consorts, uh, sisters, and, and Nazi connections? They were a bit worried, and so inevitably they did a bit of digging and came up with a, a dossier on him. But very, very quickly they realised that he was not to be tainted by his family's connections. And if anything... His worry came more from the, the leftist side of things. Uh, he was a bit, bit more of a socialist than the, uh, than the royal family were used to. So, um, no, the only real security risk uh, with him was more about potential uh, um, for blackmail around um, company he may or may not have kept, to put it delicately. In the last interlude, I noted that the British crown has only seen one assassination in its past 600 years of history. 
This is particularly fascinating when we compare that to the 100-year span between 1864 and 1964, in which four American presidents were assassinated and unsuccessful attempts made on the lives of three others. Only after William McKinley was killed in Buffalo, the third president to be assassinated, did the United States implement systematic and continuous protection of the president. Now, this was not just an American trend. Globally, the era of 1880 to 1914 is known as the Golden Age of Assassination. During this period, the Western world saw the assassinations of Tsar Alexander II, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, both the King and Prime Minister of Greece, Umberto I of Italy, Alexander I of Serbia, Grand Duke Sergei Romanov, and later the entire Royal Romanov family in 1918. The trend of murdering those in power was certainly not random. The rises of Marxism, nihilism, and anarchism engendered a tumultuous era of revolutionary thought that spread across the world faster than ever due to new and modernized forms of global communication. 100 years after the beginning of the golden age of assassination, anarchy caught popularity again, but this time in the form of musical expression. In England, the Sex Pistols sent punk rock shockwaves across the country with their iconic song, God Save the Queen, an anti-monarchy, anti-establishment song that criticized British politics, specifically the so-called old-fashioned royals. Without utilizing violence, the punk subculture in the 1980s mirrored much of the same social and political beliefs associated with the revolutionary wave a century earlier, with, of course, less assassinations. For more on the golden age of assassinations and the origins of what we now know as terrorism, check out our recent episode with James Crossland. Now, back to Rory and Richard. So let, let's say I do a jump cut forward. So we get up to the era of Margaret Thatcher comes into power. Then we have Prince Charles, the future king, and he uh, marries a, a young woman called uh, Diana Spencer. And, you know, this is huge over on this side of the Atlantic. I, f- I feel like uh, people in the States are more interested in the British royals than, than British people in general. So uh, I think that this will be a, a good one to zero in on. So tell us a little bit more about that. Tell us about that part of your book where you look at Charles and you look at Diana. So this this is a fascinating period when the the worlds of intelligence and information and media are coming together. And there is not only unprecedented interest in Charles and Diana, but also kind of a moment when the gloves come off, when the press is becoming less respectful, more intrusive. And this presents a whole range of problems, not least um, security problems for the royal family. So you find that intelligence and security officers who traditionally have been trying to protect the royal family from people who are mentally disturbed, assassins, are also trying to keep the press away who were proving to be not just annoying but actually physically dangerous to the royal family. And the, pre- the press are using intelligence techniques themselves, aren't they, with uh, you know, long-range surveillance cameras and 
uh, wiretapping and you know, um, all, all, all this kind of stuff. It's a weird blurring of intelligence and journalism and royals, and they're all, all mixed in together. And, and of course, the, the resources, the resources that the, the press and the paparazzi have that follow the royals is extraordinary. All the best spy gadgets, all the best telephone monitoring equipment. There's a moment when Prince Charles, very annoyed, confronts um, the top royal reporter from The Sun, one of Britain's tabloids, and he's kind of lost his temper, and he says, you're scum, you're scum, you're just scum. And the reporter replies very deferentially, sort of tucking his forelock, yes, sir, we are scum, but we are the creme de la scum. And what he meant was, <laughs> essentially, they were the A-team. And what we discovered later was actually MI6 uses a bunch of freelancers with special skills, the top, top, the world's top long-range photographer who moonlights for MI6 is by day a royal paparazzi. So these two worlds, these two worlds really were coming together in a quite remarkable way. Mm. And tell us about Diana. Did she in any way intersect uh, more directly with the world of intelligence? So we know Charles was was interested in it and involved in it, but Diana as as the the princess of wales was what was her relationship like with intelligence well i think diana increasingly became anxious about the role of government the role of some of the security people around her this contributed to her anxiety perhaps even instability and so as her relationship with the royal family becomes more distant in 1992, 1993, as, as, as Charles and Diana separate, she deliberately decides to drop her official security. This is around December 1993. There's fabulously interesting official documents about this because Whitehall and Westminster panic. This is unprecedented. Someone who's attracting this much attention from the press, from people who are potentially disturbed, doing away with her. And the the Home Secretary and the Prime Minister want it formally recorded that this isn't their decision because they anticipate that this is potentially going to lead to disaster, as indeed it does in Paris a few years later. She gets paranoid with regards to the intelligence services. Uh, She thinks that the the men in grey suits, the, the deep British state, are somehow looking at her or they're somehow she's going to tragically intersect with them at some point. Tell us a little bit more about that aspect of, of Diana and the, maybe even go on to the Diana conspiracy. You know, MI6 were involved or British intelligence were involved in Diana uh, because she was cavorting with a uh, Muslim Arab. This is, this is, the, this is the, the, the tragedy of, of Princess Diana is the, the encroaching paranoia is she sheds the A-team of security and and counterintelligence and protection because she's convinced they're out to get her and goes with the more amateurish, private um, setup, which ultimately lets her down. And she was, you know, there's always the question, just because she's paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Um, So the question then is, were they spying on her? And we know that the NSA has 
files on Princess Diana. But the, the really, really important point is that she wasn't the target. This is stuff when she is dealing with um, Latin American governments or clearing landmines in um, in sub-Saharan Africa and NSA or GCHQ or whomever might be intercepting different communications of, of governments or NGOs and listening to this different parts of the world. And Diana might well be caught up in some of that material. But, you know, we, we know that doesn't mean that she was a, a target of espionage. And we certainly know that um, she was not assassinated as, as, uh, as the conspiracy theorists like to, uh, like to point out. We, we spent a lot of time on the Diana conspiracy, and it's clear that the main reason that this is not a conspiracy is that when a state decides to assassinate someone, it takes weeks, even months, to set this up. You know, governments do assassinate people, but they only do it when all the paperwork is in order. And essentially, Diana's visit to Paris was done on the spur of the moment. And and this is a clear indication that this was not an assassination, this was an accident. But but there are still nevertheless, in, in all those inquiries, and there were three enormous inquiries revealing some really top secret documents, there's some amazing stuff. And you can see how, because some of those top hotels are sites of intelligence gathering, the top hotels in Paris, working closely with the French intelligence service, Essentially, if you're a royal or a dignity, dignitary, a Saudi prince, as you visit one of those hotels, you're essentially walking into an intelligence surveillance box. So, yes, they were, they were rubbing shoulders with intelligence wittingly and unwittingly all the time. Just for our listeners, who protects the royal family so in the united states it's the secret service that looks after the president for example is there is there a british version of the secret service so in the uk it's a specialist branch of the police and of course they talk to the american secret service all the time there's a wonderful moment actually when um when because because the 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 scale of attacks on um the, the the British royal family have not been the same as have been directed to 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 American presidents. So the Secret Service were warning the British in the eighties about um the growing scale of attacks. The British police were being a little bit relaxed. We're fine. Everything's cool. And then there's that famous moment when someone gets into the Queen's bedroom chap called Fagan, who climbs down a drain pipe, gets into the Queen's bedroom. The Queen is phoning the police for assistance. Nobody's coming. And we're told that the American Secret Service were pleased that it all turned out right, but were slightly smug. They're like, we told you, we told you that you needed to sharpen up and you guys were asleep. I think it was actually a fair comment. Fair comment from the American Secret Service. There, there was another moment where the, where the, where the secret, American Secret Service was shocked that their British counterparts wouldn't be allowed to rugby tackle the Queen if they were if an assassin you know, <laughs> stepped out from a, from a crowd in a way that you know, they, they would dive in front of Reagan and push him out of the way. Doing that for the Queen was a, was a, was a no-no. And um, yeah, it, just, it was just a kind of weird, dark, dark comedic moments. So a special branch that protects the royal family? Well, special branch doesn't exist anymore. Special branch has been merged with the counter-terrorism police. It's, it's, it's specialist protection officers who cover both the royal family and also diplomats in the UK. So they are they're actually very like the American Secret Service. There's a really important point here, which is that 
the monarch can't be locked away. The monarch, the, the queen used to say, I need to be seen to be believed. She, to have any legitimacy, she has to be seen amongst her people and to be respected and, and, and cheered. And that means she has to, and her family, have to be in and out amongst the people shaking hands. And whether it was Queen Victoria back in the 19th century or, or Queen Elizabeth, they knew, they knew they couldn't hide away behind armoured vehicles and rows and rows of um, armed, you know, armed forces with big riot shields. They, they had to be with, with the people. And this meant that intelligence becomes particularly crucial because it gives you that kind of that forewarning to allow you to minimize the more visible protective security of state, which would have been a would have been a disaster if she'd locked herself away in Buckingham Palace for 60 years. As we get towards the end, the current Prince of Wales, Prince William, do we know his disposition towards intelligence? Well, he was doing the work experience. He was doing, uh, he did a week, a week with each uh, intelligence service, a, a, a two or three years back now. And he was you know, joining MI5 on supposedly on um, undercover drive arounds with him in the in the back seats, um, <laughs> watching suspects. He was in MI6 headquarters, being given briefings on the latest uh, on the latest intelligence and threats, uh, known as as Will. And he was he was there in Cheltenham in the donuts, sitting around the canteen as Will gossiping with the other, you know, intelligence newbies. Um, so he, he's, he's, he's clearly interested and he's clearly wanting to get a feel and a flavour for the, the different agencies and, uh, and, and what they do, just like his, his parents and, and grandparents always did. Mm -hmm. So just to close out, I'm sure some people are listening to this and thinking, God, the British are absolutely barking mad. What the hell are those people doing? So that leads on to the question, but is this something that's going to continue? Do you ever see this kind of close relationship coming to an end? Do you ever see some future prime minister who's super modernist saying, you know, we're putting an end to this? Um, yeah, what's your take on the long-term forecasting of this kind of relationship? I think as long as the monarchy is in existence, then this is going to continue. The, there's a general trend of decline in terms of how active and meddling and interfering the, the Queen can be. You know, Queen Elizabeth did a lot less meddling than Queen Victoria did, for example. But, you know, she would still um, play an active role on, um, on, on occasion. Uh, but gradually, uh, that role is, is dwindling. But they're always going to have um, knowledge as long as there is a monarch. And, you know, what's the phrase? With, with, with knowledge comes power. I, you know, I, I think the best reward for a British, for a spy um, who's risking their lives to penetrate a terrorist organization, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, was to be brought in and given a cup of tea and a cucumber sandwich um, with, with, with the monarch. Um, and and as, long as, as long as we have spies risking their lives there's going to be a role for the monarch dishing out the tea and the cucumber sandwich. And this is this is a motivator. This is important. Well, thanks ever so much. This has been a really, uh, really fun and, and engaging and interesting conversation. And I really, I really did enjoy your book. Uh, so congratulations and thanks for sharing your expertise and experience.
Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up next week on SpyCast. Sometimes when I was chief of staff to the president, I'd be alone in the Oval Office, and I'd look around and say, my God, here I am, the son of Italian immigrants, in probably the most powerful place on the face of the earth. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast at spymuseum.org or on Twitter at INTL Spycast. If you go to our page, thecyberwire.com forward slash podcasts forward slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. I'm Aaron Dietrich, and your host is Dr. Andrew Hammond. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Vaughn III, Emily Coletta, Afua Anakwa, Emily Renz, Ariel Samuel, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, and Jen Ivan. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artifacts, the International Spy Museum. Spy Museum.